0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled FCRN Modulation as a Targeted Approach to Myasthenia Gravis Management from Pathophysiologic Rationale to Practical Application. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NYF 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Well, welcome to this program, FCRN modulation as a targeted approach to the management of myasthenia gravis. Tonight's panelists is myself, Chip Howard, Amy Clark, and Claire Spahn, who are joining me through this endeavor. We're going to look and compare safety efficacy, tolerability of newer treatments for generalized MG with the traditionally used therapies. We're going to understand how FCRN inhibitors can reduce autoreactive antibodies and then give you some comfort in using FCRN inhibitors in your practice, whether it's through intravenous administration or the new subcutaneous formulation. So let's begin. We're going to talk about where we've been versus where we are now in the management of myasthenia. And so, what is myasthenia? It's an autoimmune disorder. Elements of the neuromuscular junction have been misrecognized as non-self, and our immune system is targeting various proteins in the neuromuscular junction. The diagnosis is made by a very detailed, exquisite neuromuscular history and physical examination. It's a clinical diagnosis and we confirm that through a number of techniques. One is electrophysiology, a test called repetitive nerve stimulation. A second is single-fiber EMG. We can confirm it through serology, looking for antibodies, and we'll come back and talk about that in a little bit. Or we can look at how it responds to a particular class of drugs called cholinesterase inhibitors. These antibodies bind to a variety of determinants On the postsynaptic membrane of the neuromuscular junction, that postjunctional architectural array is the neuromuscular junction. The receptors are located on the crests of those folds, and it's the density of these receptors that becomes critical in our ability for nerve and muscle communication. As receptors are occupied by transmitter... Ionic channels open, and that flux of sodium depolarizes that membrane, and that electrical potential reaches a threshold such that an action potential is generated, and then the muscle fiber contracts. Myasthenia is a snowflake disease. There are common themes in terms of the pattern of weakness, the presentation, etc., Everybody is an individual. But we can say that any of the muscles you voluntarily control can be affected. So the eye, oropharyngeal muscles of speech, swallow, respiratory muscles of breathing, for instance, neck, limb muscles, affecting ability to do fine motor tasks, walk, get up, sit down, etc. 80% plus experience ocular symptomatology, either drooping of the eyelid, double vision, both. It need not be symmetrical. It's often asymmetrical. And 70% of patients go on and experience generalized weakness. We know that it's about 8 to 10 cases per million. In Canada, it may approach 42, based on one study looking at claims data. And there's probably around 250 cases at any one time. There are geographic differences in the subsets of myasthenia, but myasthenia has been identified wherever there is medical expertise throughout the world. Interestingly, it's a disease of younger women and older men. In China, for instance, there's a very large number of juvenile myasthenics Under the age of 18, many orders of magnitude larger than what we see in Europe and in the US, and we don't understand that. People have thought it's due to exposure to the Japanese equine encephalitis virus, though in Japan, who have the same exposure, they don't see that degree of juvenile MG. But there's something different there. In Denmark, for instance, musk myasthenia, a subset of MG, is rarely seen. There are probably less than five cases in the entire country, which is very striking. So the core manifestation is weakness that's made worse, improved by activity, improved with brief periods of rest, only to recur when that activity is resumed. And so one is talking. Sir Thomas Willis's famous description, they become dysarthric. They rest, they recover their speech. One is combing or brushing or washing their hair, and it comes to the point where they just can't do it. They put the arm down and rest, and then can restart after a minute or two. That characteristic feature only occurs in myasthenia. The most common presenting symptom is involvement of the eye. And I already said about 80% will have this. In generalization, if we read the literature, suggests that most will do so after two years or within two years. My longest is 21 years, where she had restricted ocular disease, developed a flu-like illness, and then came in on a ventilator and respiratory failure. Bulbar involvement, we said dysarthria, dysphagia, facial weakness of the jaw, And we have this interesting phenomenon called a myasthenic snarl. And if you see somebody who has bulbar involvement with myasthenia and you crack a joke, they snarl at you. And because they can't turn the corners of their mouth upwards, it retracts back horizontally. The middle part of the lip elevates and they look like they're pissed off at you. But they're not. They're laughing inside. And this myasthenic snarl is very characteristic. Limb weakness tends to be proximal. But not always. We can have distal involvement and may be very prominent in some cases and therefore affect their ability with writing, with typing, doing their job if it involves manual dexterity. And then a significant number, upwards of 20%, and it's probably related to how they've been treated or by whom they've been treated, end up in what we call crisis. And I hear that term thrown around a lot, but MG crisis are those individuals who need assisted ventilation. So they're intubated for clearing of secretions or ventilator-dependent. That is crisis. If someone has a severe exacerbation of their limbs or they become a little dysarthric and no ventilatory involvement or don't end up on a ventilator, that's a severe exacerbation. It's not crisis. And that term has sort of been misused throughout the practice in the literature. We classify the disease based on the severity and the distribution of muscles. And the gross features are class one, two, three, four, and five. One is zero is remission, one is only eye disease, and then mild, moderate, severe, and class five is ventilatory assistance or myasthenic crisis. And then we can subset. Do they have predominant limb involvement, or do they have predominant oropharyngeal involvement being mild? And so we'll subset them A and B, and as you read literature, you'll see reference made to class 2A or 2B or 3A, 3B, and this is what we're talking about. As I already alluded to, there are subsets. Antibody to the acetylcholine receptor, we see in about 80, 85% of our patients. It's the most common form of the disease. Muscle specific protein kinase, MG, is different. We see that in about 7, 8, 9%, depending upon who you read. And in those individuals who don't have ACHR antibody, we can find it in about 40% of our patients. And then we have a very small subtype called LRP4. And that represents somewhere around 1%. So already you're recognizing that MG is not a disease. It's a syndrome. And it's composed of multiple sub etiologies that produce a very common pattern of weakness and involvement of symptoms that gets pushed in together. And we're now realizing that therapeutic interventions are different based on the subtypes that we're dealing with. And we can also classify based on age. their thymus gland pathology, and this has some import as well. We don't have time to go into that. So we're going to begin with a case introduction, Emma. 23 years old, ACHR in a body positive, initially treated with pyridostigmine, which is very commonly done because while it's a symptomatic therapy, it buys us some improvement. While we evaluate, she ultimately ends up on corticosteroids Gets great symptom control, but then has steroid adverse events. And as I told you earlier, it's the most hated drug in the myasthenic space. While very beneficial, AEs are a problem. And she got weight gain, and then it altered her mood, emotional distress. And so she's placed on mycophenolate mofetil. And she develops coping strategies that she's adopted. And listening to her and talking to her, one realizes that Her symptoms are not adequately controlled. She's still having difficulty of the disease. We're going to talk about birdies again, but with a different twist. We end. Studies have been done. Jackson was the principal author on this one, interviewing 28 individuals who had generalized myasthenia with a whole variety of symptoms and were asked to list What are your symptoms that are of bother to you? And then what are the most bothersome symptoms? And so most frequently reported, as we might expect, is 93%. We talked earlier about fatigue as being a critical problem in patients with this disease, a unique fatigue. I don't think it's what you and I perceive. Legs are critically important to individuals. And then respiratory involvement, of course, and holding up the head. And you can imagine if someone can lift their head up, the social embarrassment. You can't make eye contact. One of my patients was 90 years old. He was a bird watcher, and he couldn't watch birds. So I put him in a Philadelphia collar, and he hated it because it was just too uncomfortable. He used a soft collar, but he would walk around looking at birds, stooped over with the binoculars to his eye, looking upwards like this on trips around the world because he was well noted for this. So that was his coping strategy, but very severe involvement or bothersome to him. And then if you take that list and then say what bothers you the most, it's clearly vision. And one can imagine what the impact of diplopia does as you go about your day-to-day activities. Try and drive with double vision. Try and thread a needle if you're a seamstress with double vision. The impact on quality of life is horrific. Respiratory difficulties, of course, fatigue again comes up as being most bothersome, and then dysphagia with swallowing difficulties. So this burden affects everything from emotion, from the physicality, as well as the social. And we highlighted some of this earlier. And so it has involvements in work and career and sleep. Some people have to sleep in a chair because they can't lie down and feel comfortable. They're waking up as they have respiratory distress as the result of their sleep disturbances, hobbies, sports. They have to plan their life down to a T. I have to plan it to the time I take, say, a cholinesterase inhibitor, that I can get some grocery shopping done, or I can clean the house, or I can do my job as a computer scientist, because then I'm back with double vision or whatever, and I can't do my job. And so the impacts are wide-ranging. And even when treated, MG remains burdensome. And this is an interview based on longitudinal patients with MG, 42% in remission, clinical remission, another 45% at 10 years. But when one looks at depression and anxiety scores, they actually worsened over time. And the patient's perception of poor quality of life will even persist despite the fact that if I examine you, I can push on all your muscles, you're strong as an ox, etc. And we're not picking up on the impact the small things make on overall quality of life. So the goals of our management now are normal strength. This didn't used to be the goal of a myasthenic in days past because we didn't they we couldn't get them to that point. And we use a term called minimal manifestations, which means there is no symptoms or functional weakness that limits them because of their MG. And so someone could have mild weakness of eye closure. If I pry hard enough, I can open it. That muscle is weak, the orbicularis oculi, but everything else is normal. They're in minimal manifestations. If I haven't put their fingers out and I can, with effort, depress them slightly, but doesn't functionally impair them, They're in minimal manifestations. We also want their treatment-related adverse events to be absent or mild. And then remission is defined as no signs or symptoms other than eye closure. And so, our goal as clinicians today is to achieve this. And how do we do it? Symptom control, cholinesterase inhibitors, surgery, steroids, or steroid-sparing immune suppressants. Colonesterase inhibitors only treat symptoms of weakness. They do nothing for the underlying immunological abnormality. We use it to tweak the system, to buy a subtle improvement or a little bit of improvement. For some people, it's very important. One of the problems I see is that they become dependent upon it, and when I try to get them off the drug, they're unwilling to do so. It's a crutch almost, and it comes in a variety of formulations, and they have terrible adverse events, particularly GI, grumbling of the stomach, queasiness, nausea, frank diarrhea. We're in the midst of trials now looking at a compound that works through a totally different mechanism, but we're early in the game. Thymectomy is to remove this gland, In in our center, in many myasthenic centers, the goal is to actually remove all of the surrounding fat tissue as well, because there are thymic cells scattered throughout. And these cells express acetylcholine receptor. The subunit is different, and we believe that's where the break in immune tolerance occurs. We have a variety of steroid sparing agents that are listed on the left, and we have intravenous immunoglobulin in rituximab. And each of them has different mechanisms of action. We're not going to belabor this. But on the right side, we look at the adverse event profiles uh, bone marrow suppression, GI toxicity, renal dysfunction, thrombotic events, again, bone marrow toxicity, teratogenicity. And all of these impact our ability of what we can choose, how we can use them. And so we have to tailor our treatment to the individual. And so to take the next step, I'm going to ask Claire Spahn, who's a firm D at Stanford Neuroscience Institute or the Health Center there, who works with a very close colleague of mine, to talk about exploring the rationale in addressing not her IgG. Claire?
2: Thank you, Dr. Howard. As you correctly pointed out there, we're certainly not without an option of drug therapies for myasthenia gravis, but... We can always do better, and they're broadly immunosuppressive, and we always want to target our therapies and try and minimize side effect burden for our patients. So to that end, for my part of this presentation, I'm going to focus on IgG and targeting and considering the role of IgG at the neuromuscular junction as we try to hone in and target our therapies for this patient population. So to start off, we'll take a look at some pathophysiology. We'll do a high-level overview here and keep it brief. So what we're looking at in the upper cell here is a motor neuron, and your lower cell is the muscle cell. So what we expect and what should happen is that we have an influx of a nerve impulse, which triggers voltage-gated calcium channels, eventually leading to ACH release into the synaptic cleft and transit over to the anticholinesterase receptors. Binding of acetylcholine to the ACHR receptors causes opening of a pore in the receptor, which facilitates influx of sodium ions to the muscle cell and downstream, then we get an action potential and muscle contraction. So that's ideal state. So we are interested in these targets, the antibody target here, the acetylcholine receptors, which unfortunately is one of the mechanisms by which IgG causes problems here at the junction. It can bind, direct binding can cause an issue because obviously if our IgG is binding, the receptor is no longer available for acetylcholine to come and bind, so we cannot get our muscle contraction. Second way by which IgG can cause problems here is that it can cause internalization of the receptor and degradation. And then the third is that IgG can come along, it can recruit complement, which initiates a cascade and Further downstream complement molecules bind together to cause membrane attack complexes, which will directly attack this neuromuscular membrane. So IgG antibodies have long been targeted in MG. This is not a new phenomenon. In fact, plasma exchange has been described as effective for myasthenia gravis as early as the 1970s, so almost 15 years ago. It causes rapid removal of circulating pathogenic antibodies as well as having additional immunomodulatory effects. The cycles can be variable. You'll see physicians write for 1 to 1.5 plasma volume exchanges up to 3 to 5 days and sometimes maybe 6 weeks apart. But this is quite variable. Some patients need to be to receive their PLEX cycles for much shorter cycles, maybe every 2 weeks. In terms of side effect burden, typically patients will have central line access, which of course comes with its own side effects in terms of infection risk and clotting risk. Incidentally, plaques can be done via peripheral access as well, but as far as I'm aware, typically it's a central line. Citrate toxicity, citrate is used as the extracorporeal anticoagulant in the circuit for centrifugal plaques. And of course, there's potential for albumin reactions. Albumin is used as the replacement fluid for plex, although thankfully those are rare. IVIG has also been used off-label for myasthenia gravis for decades now as well. And it works very similarly to PLEX. PLEX doesn't bind the receptor, but it also removes pathogenic antibodies very effectively and quite quickly. So definitely, these are two very effective therapies, both in the patient with myasthenic crisis, as Dr. Howard alluded to there a while ago, and also for maintenance therapies. Certainly, we have many patients out there getting PLEX or IVIGA, and on a regular basis to keep their MG symptoms under control. And incidentally, although I refer to it as IBIG, if patients cannot tolerate it or IBIG is not working well for them or is causing too many side effects, they can also get their IG via sub-Q infusion as well. The dose is typically 2 grams per kg over 5 days initially. And of course, if patients are tolerating it well and if it suits them better, we can do that over fewer days once we establish that they do well with that Maintenance, we can even decrease to one gram per kg over two days. Cycle length, again, is patient-specific, but typically we see patients infusing every four weeks. There is potential for hypersensitivity or infusion reactions. It is a blood product, and oftentimes we'll have to pre-medicate our patients. We'll give them some diphenhydramine or acetaminophen. Renal dysfunction, there is a warning on the IVIG label for this. More so linked with sucrose-containing products, which are not really commonly used nowadays, so we don't tend to see this, although we do always monitor the patient's BUN and creatinine. And thromboembolism is also a risk. It's quite a viscous product. If you ever hold that bottle and roll it gently, don't shake it, roll it. It's quite thick. So, you know, it's something thick going into the patient's system. So it's important for them to keep well hydrated. Definitely the patients will be most concerned for the elderly or those who have impaired mobility. And just to demonstrate the involvement of plasma exchange, this is very specialist. In our institution, we offer it via transfusion department. In other institutions, they'll do it via dialysis. The machine there on the left is a centrifugal plasma exchange. So what happens is the whole blood is taken out of the patient arm. It passes through this machine, which separates the blood. with G-forces spin it out and separate it according to specific gravity, the various components of the blood. The whole blood is retained, the red blood cells. The plasma is collected into a collecting bag to be disposed of. And colloids, typically 5% albumin, which can be diluted, is added to the blood before it's pumped back into the patient. Now, the process is not overly long. I think it's typically about a two hour treatment, but it's usually limited to large hospitals. So, not always readily accessible to patients, certainly, maybe not in rural areas. Incidentally, of course, this can be used in the ICU as well for rapid removal of antibodies in patients who are in crisis, assuming that they are hemodynamically stable and suitable candidates for something that can result in fluid shift and can cause problems for them otherwise. So this brings us on to newer targeted therapies, the first of which is complement inhibitors and also the FCRN blockers. So I'll look at the complement inhibitors first. I briefly mentioned earlier that the complement cascade can lead to membrane attack complexes, and we see that demonstrated here. You have your C1 complex binding to the IgG. So the IgG has helpfully recruited this C1 complex, which is the originator molecule here in the classical complement pathway. This C1 goes to C3 to C5, and it's the cleavage of C5 to C5A and B that causes a problem. So the C5B then recruits its downstream c 6, 7, 8, and 9, and they together form a membrane attack complex, which causes destruction of the muscle membrane. So you'll see a flattened membrane there with fewer acetylcholine receptors, so certainly not as effective for muscle contraction. So eculizumab was the first approved for myasthenia gravis. It was approved in 2017. By the time it was approved for this indication, we had already tried and tested this for other indications, including PNH and HUS, hemolytic uremic syndrome. So we were used to using this and the clinical trials follow the same dosing regimen, which is 900 milligrams weekly times four. And then starting on week five, we go to a higher dose of 1200 milligrams and continue every two weeks thereafter. Ravulizumab is almost like the daughter cell of eculizumab. It's the exact same molecule, except there's a four amino acid substitution on the FC region of the antibody. That's the long tail on the Y of the antibody. And by modifying it in that way, the pharmaceutical company was able to make the product last much longer. It actually increases its binding affinity for the SCRN receptor. It's more efficiently recycled and it lasts longer, meaning that patients now only have to have their infusions every eight weeks versus every two weeks prior. So they both work similarly in that they bind to the complement protein C5, which is the final step before that C5 Separates the C5A and B, which then recruits those downstream C molecules and forms those attack complexes. So we're getting in there right before that formation and taking that out of the picture. So both of these drugs are under an FDA-mandated REMS program. So REMS is Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, meaning that the ordering provider is required to register on the pharma website to fill out a form attesting that they are aware of the risk of Neisseria meningitidis And that they do undertake to vaccinate their patients or if that's not possible, for example, if these drugs have to be started urgently, that they will provide chemoprophylaxis or antibiotics in the interim. So typically, that's a course of PENVK, or if that's not ideal for the patients, there's alternatives. In our practice, we vaccinate all of our patients with both the MEN-ACWY and MEN-B vaccines starting at least two weeks before we'll start the infusions. Very important to make sure that your patients do follow up and do those second vaccines. Both of those need a second vaccine at month one and two and also for future years. So, as long as the patient is on a complement inhibiting therapy, they need to repeat those vaccinations at ASIP specified intervals. Otherwise, these infusions are well tolerated, they don't require pre meds. The patients come in and are out or done with infusion in about an hour. They typically have an hour monitoring after that. Sometimes we'll see some headache, and of course, we're immunosuppressing them, so they are at risk for upper respiratory tract infection. So we do counsel them to monitor for this and reach out to primary care if they do need to get any kind of an antibiotic or anything for that. So future research. As you'll notice, the two products that we have to date are by IV infusion, so either at an infusion center or via home infusion. However, that may not always be convenient for our patients. Oftentimes, we have younger patients who are trying to work or go about their daily lives, and those are not really favored. Infusions are not really ideal for that population. So the next kit to the block will be ziluplopan. This one's a little bit different in terms of mechanism. You'll notice it's not a monoclonal antibody. It's a peptide, still targeting C5 and C5B, so we're trying to mitigate MAC formation or membrane attack complex. However, because it's not a monoclonal antibody, it stands out to me because I don't need to be worried about this having to be recycled via the FCRN. So if I'm thinking about my patient who has maybe a concurrent illness, many of our myasthenia gravis patients, not many, 10 to 15%, have a concurrent diagnosis for which they may need to have monoclonal antibody therapy. So this may represent an option for those patients. This one is given by sub-Q injection daily. So ideally, this would be approved for patient self-administration. Gifrulamab is also a pre-filled syringe, and that will be via weekly injection, currently in trials. And then the last one is chemdisirin and pozelamab. This is a combination of a silencing RNA molecule together with an anti-C5 antibody, still in trials in phase three studies at this point, but sub-Q injections every four weeks for the chemdisirin component and weekly for the second drug there. So definitely some exciting research going on in the space. This is definitely not an exhaustive list of all of the options that are upcoming. There's definitely some more in phase two studies at the moment, but good to know that there is potential for patient self-administered drugs in the future for the complement inhibitors. Moving along to the neonatal FC receptor antagonists, this is the newest drug class for myasthenia gravis. And I know neonatal FC receptor is quite a mouthful. For those of you who are not familiar with this drug class, let me break it down a little bit. So I tend to think of neonatal receptor as almost of a misnomer. It's not just confined to neonates. This is a very important molecule that hopefully potentiates throughout our lifetimes It is the recycling molecule in our cells, and it's vital in our bodies in maintaining IgG levels and also in regulating albumin levels in our bodies. One such example of its contribution to immunity is that it does facilitate IgG transfer across the placenta from mother to baby during human gestation. The FC in the name refers to the component, the long white. chain of the antibody that it binds. And in this drug class, we're trying to stop the recycling. So we're talking about neonatal FC receptor antagonists or blockers. So normal state is what you see happening here on the left-hand cell. We have pinocytosis, means that the immunoglobulins are taken into the cell in a fluid molecule. They're then transitioned to the endosome, and via pH reaction, the IgG interacts with the FC receptor. Once this complex has bound... Those molecules are then automatically recycled. The IgG, the FCRN is going to escort the IgG back out of the cell via exocytosis. So it's saved. However, anything that's unbound is sent to the lysosyme and degraded or dumped. So this is the patient on the right with the FCRN bound to the FC receptor. Once it's bound, the FC receptor is no longer available to bind incoming IgG molecules. Therefore, all of those IgGs are sent to the lysosome and destroyed. So that can be good if the IgGs are bad, okay? We don't want to recycle those pathogenic IgGs that want to come and sit on our receptors. However, we also have healthy IgGs that are helping our immune system, or we may have drugs, monoclonal antibodies of an IgG form, something like rituximab, for example. So the pharmacist to me is thinking about, you know, interactions and how Everything is competing for this receptor. So the FCRN is essentially agnostic to the IgG source. It's going to try and recycle no matter what. So in words, what we just reviewed in the picture, the FCRN recycles the IgG, and it actually extends its half-life by about four times compared with immunoglobulins that are not recycled. So for example, an IgG M or A, its half-life is about three or four days, four to five days. Versus the IgG, when it's recycled, can last up to 23 days in our system. So that's why we don't have to repeat our immunoglobulin dosing for maybe three to four weeks. The efficacy of plasma exchange and immunoabsorption, which is a very specific type of plasma exchange targeted specifically towards IgG, they demonstrate the utility of removing autoantibodies in myasthenia gravis management, but they have limited availability as we discussed previously. The FCRN targets the IgG autoantibodies with greater selectivity than conventional myasthenia treatments such as corticosteroids, and certainly has a more acceptable side effect profile than the more broadly immunosuppressive therapies.
1: Thanks, Claire. So let's go on and talk about efgartigimod, tigamod And it was approved in December 2021. Work first began on it in 2017, and it's taken us that long to bring it to fruition. In June of this year, the subcutaneous formulation was approved by the FDA. And as you've already heard, it antagonizes the neonatal FC receptor and blocks the recycling of IgG. I won't go into the dosing, but sub-Q and IV formulations are identical in terms of antibody IgG clearance. The ADAPT trial was the phase three-blinded portion of the trial, and so individuals who had mild, moderate, generalized disease, regardless of their antibody class, were enrolled, and we're going to focus on those who are ECHR positive. They had to have an activities of daily living score of at least five, and they were on stable doses of standard of care, and then randomized to receive four weekly infusions at 10 milligrams per kilogram. And the primary outcome measure was a two-point change in the MGADL score that had to be sustained for four consecutive weeks, and the onset of improvement had to occur within seven days of their last infusion. And what this graphic shows you that individuals have a very abrupt and rapid change in circulating their total IgG levels, as well as ECHR antibody. And here are the infusions at time zero, one, two, and three. And so at week four, they've reached their nadir, and then very slowly over the subsequent weeks, their levels start to return towards baseline. The two top lines represent the placebo arm of the trial. We see this despite this subclass of the IgG molecule IgG 1, 2, 3, and 4. And this has importance because ACHR myasthenia is IgG 1 and 3, musk myasthenia is predominantly. IgG4 and LRP4 myasthenias, predominantly IgG2. And we found similar responses, whether you had antibody to acetylcholine receptor or did not. And notably, there was no change in albumin, and you just heard that FCRN traffics albumin as well as IgG And other immunoglobulin molecules are not changed. Here's the primary outcome here in blue, those who achieve this mg responder definition relative to the placebo arm. And placebo is the nemesis of all MG trials for multiple reasons. And the onset of effect was within the first two weeks of administration in the overwhelming majority of patients. When we look at the secondary outcome measure, this quantified myasthenia gravis score It's a physician-derived examination. We see very similar responses. And as we alluded to earlier, and this is another piece of data that's coming, that individuals with shorter disease duration seemingly do better than those with longer disease duration, suggesting that we need a culture shift in our thinking and we need to become much more aggressive earlier in the management of our patients. The ADAPT trial was unique. We spent a lot of time, and I was involved in the design of the trial, talking with patients as to what you want. And they told us that they only want to be treated when they have to be treated. And that's how this cyclical program came about. Treat for four weeks, follow, observe, retreat after in the trial based on criteria and practice when you start to relapse. And look what we saw. More than a third had durations of response in excess of 12 weeks. 22% somewhere between 8 and 12 weeks. Another third between 6 and 8 and 11% were down within 4 to 6 weeks. And so the variability was quite striking, suggesting that you don't need to treat someone continuously as we do with many of our therapeutics, but perhaps this is the start of precision therapy. When we look at repeatability, looking at the ADL scores, earlier I showed you IgG levels, very consistent drop with repeated cycles of infusion. Remember, four infusions over four weeks, but very reproducible, both in our clinical outcome measures. Those who completed the blinded portion were allowed to enroll in the open label. We called it ADAPT+. This was a three-year open label extension trial, primarily looking at safety and tolerability. But we also looked at efficacy. 90% of the patients who were in the initial blinded phase were rolled over and wanted to be in the open label. That tells us something about their perception of the drug. And as I showed you, this repeatability and reduction of IgG and repeatability in terms of EDL and QMG scores held true through the open label form as well. And no new safety signals were identified. And so the adverse event rates were similar in whether you were on drug continuously, whether you're on placebo, rolling over to drug, and most commonly headache, nasopharyngitis, diarrhea. This trial was done during COVID. It was a testament to the patient's and to all of the investigators, investigating teams that we pulled this through in the midst of the COVID pandemic. So there were COVID infections in our patient population, so that drops in as a significant AE as well. UTIs were seen slightly more prominently in the treated arm versus placebo arm. We spoke about the the new formulation of the subcutaneous. It's co-formulated with hyaluronidase that allows us to administer a 5.6 cc injection and not have adverse events. We break down the local college barriers. It's been used for hyaluronidase in the oncology space for decades, and we compared sub-q administration to intravenous administration, looking at changes at IgG levels, antibody levels, and our clinical outcome measures. They were essentially identical. The latest child on the block is mab or rosy as we call it, because this is not pronounceable. And it was just approved by the FDA. It's pending in Europe. And it has approval both for ACHR positive and those who are MUSK positive. It's a full-size IgG4 monoclonal antibody, as opposed to an FC fragment, which f is. And it also results in reduction of circulating IgG antibody levels. It's a weight-based dosing program that it's administered by subcutaneous infusion, not an injection, but an infusion every six weeks. And then the second cycle can't start earlier than 63 days after the first dose. Similar responses in terms of headache, some hypersensitivity reactions, aseptic meningitis was seen, as well as a slight increase in urinary tract and nasopharyngeal infections, but from a clinical perspective, very similar in the outcomes. The trial was called My Caring Phase 3, and I told you about the population. They had to have lower ADL scores, at least three non-ocular symptoms, and had to have a significant QMG score of greater than 11, and then were randomized to two dosing paradigms, and then Weekly for six weeks. And again, because the FDA mandates primary outcome measures in our space, it was the MGADL score. And this is the data here. Again, rapid reductions in the level of total IgG, and the two doses are represented by the different colors, as well as the antibody level. And then over time, a slow return to baseline. Again, one sees the placebo response here much less than all other trials in MG. I'm not sure exactly why. And treatment responses were consistent with repeatability. Another outcome measure, the MG composite score, was consistent and efficacy was maintained over this entire open-label study. The study is still ongoing. Other endpoints are being looked at and probably won't wrap up until the first quarter of next year. There are other trials going on. So with efgar tigamod, we're looking at prefilled syringes with the hope that FDA will rethink their initial decision that an HCP does not have to administer this drug. Virtually all of the patients in the trial are self-administered, drawing the medication up out of a bottle in a vial into a syringe, changing needles, and then making the injection. They did it very well. So we're puzzled by... The FDA's restriction. So this study's being done to try and prove that. Rosie is also looking at a self injectant system as well, and those trials are underway. We're also looking at an alternative dosing interval: a single infusion or injection, sub or IV, every two weeks. And that trial we have no data for. There are two others in the fray, so to speak. Nipocalimab is another one. It's an IgG1 monoclonal antibody. IV infusion every two weeks, that trial is ongoing. And betoclimab is a sub-Q weekly, and then to every two weeks, and that trial is ongoing. This compound in early phase trials for TED disease, thyroid eye disease, demonstrated abnormalities in albumin and cholesterol levels and put a pause in that study. We'll have to see how that all works out. So what do we use? You know, we're trying to address some met needs. We need alternatives to corticosteroids and other ISTs because of the perceptions of the patient in terms of quality of life, the adverse events. We know that FCRN inhibitors will work on all relevant immunoglobulin molecules, including those that are pathogenic and must. Complement inhibition will not work in an IgG4-mediated disease. IgG4 does not activate complement other than a minimal amount and not enough to be therapeutic. We need to consider that are there comorbid conditions that will dictate what choice that we make. There are patient considerations and preferences in terms of the administration route. I have a cardiothoracic ICU nurse who will not inject herself with a half cc of aqueous solution and told her husband in my presence that if he did, she'd kill him and prefers to come in for every two weeks, IV infusion, and has done this for years. And, you know, she's a nurse and just will not do it. And so patient preference is very critical. We need to think about adverse event profiles. One of the problems we think one might encounter based on information from the diabetes world is compliance. If one has subcutaneous injections, we know in diabetes there's a high rate of noncompliance. And will this carry over into the MG space? And We have no data as yet. We think MG patients have much more vested interest and will do it. And then, of course, who practices medicine in the United States? And it's not the clinician. It's the payer. And so the payer is now dictating what we can use in the majority of instances and making individuals jump through a variety of hoops. There's an the insurance company in Florida that requires that you fail five ISTs before you're allowed to consider eculizumab if you have refractory mg. That's a 12-year odyssey before you use five ISTs and use them to the point where you'd say it's not working. And so these kinds of idiocies we need to change, and there are ways we can do it that we're working on. So I'm going to turn this over to Amy Clark, who's the Vice President of Clinical Nurse Practice for Optum Infusion Pharmacy.
0: Thank you, Dr. Howard. All right, so practical considerations for use for the two gartigamods and Rosie, which has way too many syllables, as we've pointed out. The first thing we want to do is consider the individual timeline for the frequency of treatment cycles for these products. And part of that is the use of the MGADL assessment tool. And there are some specific considerations there based on your site of care, whether it's at Stanford or at Dr. Howard's site of care, or if it's in home or an alternate site of care, who is performing that MGADL? Have they been trained to perform it? And the most important thing is that you are not handing it to the patient to complete it themselves. The other thing to consider, as we've also discussed, is that the payer drives a great deal of the process here and they may want the prescriber to be the one completing that MGADL tool or they may be asking a pharmacist to complete that tool and report it back to determine if the patient has migrated from their baseline and it is appropriate for them to have the next cycle of any of these therapies when you're looking at each of these three therapies be it efgartigimod intravenously efgartigimod with the hyaluronidase subcutaneously Or, Rosie, subcutaneously, what is the post-infusion monitoring requirements for these therapies? And is it required for every single dose or just for the first dose? So familiarize yourself with the package inserts for these therapies so that you understand how they were approved when they were ultimately indicated. And then the longer term assessment treatments of efficacy and how we monitor for and manage any adverse events related to the treatment itself. Are pre medications necessary? Will the patient require pre-meds prior to the intravenous therapy, corticosteroids, diphenhydramine, or any other type of therapy? Is this patient needle phobic? Do they warrant having any kind of numbing agent used for starting their IV or inserting the needles? These are all considerations as we start talking about shared decision making with the patient. So, nursing considerations, and this is pharmacy considerations as well. We talk about the fact that we know we have an intravenous option and we know we have two subcutaneous options. Does this patient have adequate venous access? And if not, we need to be having that discussion with the prescriber, the patient, and the care team to determine if subcutaneous might be the better option for that patient so that we understand what route of administration we're going to be needing. Again, is a pre-med needed? And that could be including the premedications itself for the side effects associated with that medication for that patient or for numbing agent needs for the needle insertion or for their line. It's important to have product knowledge. I use a package insert as my Bible To understand if there are boxed warnings for a product, what the warnings and precautions are, what were the prevalence of adverse events that occurred during the trials themselves, what are the preparation requirements? Each of these have unique requirements in preparation. I will say that the ethgartigamod subcutaneous with hyaluronidase is administered by manual push. And they didn't use a straight needle subcutaneously into the body. They actually used a needle set similar to what we use for subcutaneous Ig, but it was a straight needle, like a BD needle that you would use for venipuncture. So know what was used in the trial and how they got it into the body. It's important to understand what that looks like. That is drawn up into a syringe and administered slowly over approximately 10 to 15 minutes, whereas Rosie, when it's administered subcutaneously, is drawn up as either 3, 4, or 6 milliliters subcutaneously, and it is administered through a syringe pump and that is slightly different, and the total infusion time for that is anywhere from 15 to 20 to 30 minutes, depending on the volume, and you'll need to work with the supplies that you have available to you, the type of pump, does it have a rate set that's associated with it, and understanding what those rates are going to look like for you. Do you have needle stick phobia with your patient? Do you need to... Use icing or there are tools like the Buzzy, which is for gait control to manage pain. Know what your volumes are for the site. Do they have adequate subcutaneous tissue? What is the timing involved for the intravenous formulation of efgartigimod? And then anaphylaxis management, depending on your site of care and your protocol. If you're in an ambulatory infusion suite or the home, do you have an anaphylaxis kit? With diphenhydramine and fluids and epinephrine, or do you have a two pack of an epinephrine auto injector? If you're in, in an ambulatory infusion center, which allows for Medicare patients to be treated, you have a prescriber, such as a nurse practitioner or a PA or a physician, that may be able to have other therapies on board if the patient does have anaphylaxis or non IgE mediated reactions. And then, as I mentioned previously, it's very, very important that we accurately complete the MGADL tool. Not only to ensure that the patient is cycling at the appropriate interval, but that the payer is reimbursing. Many of the payers are not approving multiple cycles at a time. You may only get one or two cycles approved, and it is dependent on that MG-ADL being completed to determine if another prior authorization will be approved, and that can create a delay. So understand with the prescriber what frequency with which they want that MGA ADL completed. I've heard that some are having it completed at 28 days and then again at 50, just to make sure that you don't have that delay in treatment appropriately. So, naive patient and first doses. This is just, you know, we're all very comfortable with immunoglobulin therapy here. That's why we're here. And understanding what our organizational policies are for anaphylaxis and allergy management and how we train clinicians, site of care considerations, geography, EMS response, patient's history with biologics, other site of care considerations, their caregiver support, the age of the patient, the route of administration, as we previously discussed the risks associated with first doses of these therapies uniquely, understanding what those look like. And I think most importantly, many of us are accredited with ACHC and Orient or Joint Commission here. And it's extraordinarily important that your patient knows who to call and when to call them, whether it's 911, whether it's their pharmacy or whether it's their prescriber. Vaccination considerations. For the FCRN-naive patients, recombinant or inactive vaccines should be up-to-date two to four weeks prior to initiation of treatment, allowing for adaptive immunity to develop, and live attenuated vaccines must be used with caution in immunosuppressed patients. For patients already receiving an FCRN inhibitor, there is no evidence against administering recombinant or inactivated vaccines but the timing should be to administer the vaccines greater than or equal to two months after the last dose and greater than two to four weeks before the next dose. And I'm going to give this back to Dr. Howard for a recap on Emma.
1: So we said we first treated Emma with periodostigmine, transient effects as we suspected. We went to corticosteroids, but the adverse events of weight gain and mood changes suggested that she be changed from that and we go to mycophenolate mofetil, and after several months, inadequately responsive. And so patients who improve still have inadequate symptom control in many cases, or they experience the burdens of therapy, the adverse events. Whether, when, how to modify Emma's treatment regimen include the patient when developing the plan of care. This is a shared decision-making process. They're an integral part of what we do. Our clinical challenges include, and I don't like the word refractory because every patient has some response, but poor responses to treatment. And then the timing of stacked therapy, i.e., if you're including immunoglobulin and F. cartigamide or rituximab and F. cartigamide, one needs to know the pharmacology of the drug you're using. You rely on experts like Claire, and I rely on my pharmacist all the time to help me think this through but becomes critically important in the management potential problems we're going to face in the future include the increased numbers of patients requiring treatment for autoimmune disorders and malignancies my three infusion centers associated with our healthcare system and they're within 15 miles of each other are saturated the wait list is horrific the long-term effects of covid are playing a role in triggering autoimmune disorders. And now we have a new therapy for Alzheimer's disease that's really going to stress our infusion center work streams. And so as we plan therapeutic interventions, we need to keep these concepts in mind. You need to have open dialogue, not only with your patient, of course, but with your healthcare team as they become an integral part in how we can deliver the safest and the best care for our patients. And so in summary our therapies for mg are broadly immune suppressive often not fully effective associated with a variety of adverse events leaving the patient with unmet needs and poor quality of life and advancing our understanding in terms of the pathogenesis has led to new novel therapeutics with two classes such as complement inhibitors and fcrn inhibitors the latter which reduces the level of autoreactive immunoglobulin antibodies that is giving us some additional treatment goals. And then, as we've already heard several times, currently we have two approved FCRN therapies, f subQ sub-Q and IV, and then ROSI, which is a subcutaneous infusion. And so I'd like to thank you, but I also now want your questions. And so the question is, are there treatment recommendations for patients that experience a reduction and IgG levels after receiving efgartigimod. tigamod
2: Claire? So that's the goal of therapy, and we'll hope to experience a reduction in IgG treatment levels. Those levels do come back, as you saw from the data from the ADAPT trial. So the IgGs do recover after several weeks, and it's at that point that we can come in with the next cycle. Reduction in IgG shows response to the drug and hopefully benefit for the patient, so the treatment would be, it would be recommended to continue it. Maybe I'm misunderstanding something on the question, but I think it's it's a good thing if we're reducing IgG levels with the epigartigamide. So I
0: think there was also a question that I had been asked earlier about that reduction in native Ig potentially putting the patient more at risk for infection, and what would your thoughts be on that?
2: Yeah, definitely there's an increased risk for infection. It's incidentally, it's not wiping out all of the IgG. It's taking about 75% out of circulation. So the patient does retain some IgG in their system. And obviously over several weeks, those IgG levels do recover. So it's actually not as immunosuppressing as, for example, a B cell therapy, which really does hit immunoglobulins. And they're not recovering until that six-month mark. So definitely we caution patients to be cautious, to try to take steps to avoid infections. You know, the common sense things like the hand-washing, you know, being careful with sources of food and whatnot, trying to avoid somebody who's acutely ill with COVID or flu. Yeah, it's not wiping the immune system completely.
1: And remember that all of the mechanisms for antigen recognition in the cellular aspect of the immune system are intact. And so one can mount an antibody response. So... Yes, there is labeling to say there is an increased rate of infection. We don't know what that rate truly is because of the short time we've used these drugs. But the cellular mechanisms to mount an attack are there. We've simply reduced that circulating level of antibody, and the concerns about appropriate self-care are there.
0: Can I ask a quick question before we go to the next one? This is one that comes up frequently. For those patients that are on stacked therapies— either rituximab or IG with f specifically is what i up most often. What is the timing recommended between the doses because of the mechanism of spection
1: Yeah, well, we have no data. I think we'll gather it as we move forward using it in the clinical practice. People have said to wait as long as possible. That's what Shree says in Richard Nowak. But we have no good data at all. It's a balance. You know, if the patient is symptomatic regardless of the duration from their last infusion, one would consider retreatment in some people's minds. Why is it that some patients are being switched to different meds than back to previous meds, not knowing the specifics of the patient? I'm not sure I can say. You know, we've talked about the mechanisms of the pathogenesis of MG that are both antibody-dependent and complement-dependent. What we don't know is... Is any one mechanism the driver in there all the time? There was one shift between the two extremes with lots of people in the middle, and we know none of this basic science. Our therapeutic advances have leapfrogged all of the appropriate studies necessary for us to understand what's really going on. It's possible that this individual is trying to treat both mechanisms of disease. It is switching back and forth. I don't think that's appropriate, just knowing how the pharmacology of the drugs work, uh, particularly with the complement inhibitors. So I can give a better answer than that. My best
2: guess would be change of insurance. Well, that's, uh, that's <laughs> one too. Because you're right, no clinical reason for that.
1: Claire, are patients who are initiating therapy required to get the initial dose of the two meningitis vaccines two weeks prior to starting or are they required to complete the entire dosing schedule of those vaccines prior to initiating therapy?
2: Okay, so the package insert does recommend, require, by right, REMS, that patients are vaccinated two weeks prior to start. With the caveat, though, they do facilitate patients who need to be started urgently. You can imagine if the patient is in the ICU on ventilatory support and crisis and not responding to Plex or IVIG or whatnot, there is an option to start them right away and that you would provide an antibiotic prophylaxis for at least the initial four weeks. But I would also start those vaccines as soon as you can.
1: Yeah, in our practice, we initiate their first dose of each and then we begin treatment. We do not use prophylactic antibiotics. France, up until about six months ago, mandated antibiotics for the life of. One's on complement inhibitor. They've now changed that. There is a task force that's being headed, and I'm having an Alzheimer's moment, out of Mayo with a bunch of immunologists, infectious disease neurologists, to make recommendations on vaccination and antibiotic therapy. And we're putting together a white paper that hopefully will be out in in several months. So there's a lot of thought going into it. One of the concerns is that we're seeing an increase in other strains of meningococcal bacterium that are not covered by our current vaccinations. And what does that mean for us going forward? So it's all in play. So stay tuned with ACIP guidelines. And the CDC, that's probably your best resource for all of this.
0: I have one for you, Dr. Howard. Why is f not indicated for musk-positive patients?
1: It's due to a statistical anomaly. So when we did the trial, we had ACHR positive, ACHR negative, active treatment, and then placebos groups for each of those. If we compare the results of the ACHR negative to the ACHR positive, the curves overlap perfectly. When we look at the total population, clear separation from placebo response. But when we take the ACHR negative, which included the MUST population, and compared it to those patients who were randomized to the placebo arm of that group, there was no statistical difference. That placebo arm had a huge beneficial placebo response that messed up all the statistics. The numbers were small. The FDA only allowed 20% of the total population to be ACHR negative. So that was a real methodological issue. So this is all being rethought. Do we do another trial? That's under discussion. Do we let nature take its course and use it off-label and then gather data? That's another discussion. In Japan, they can use it for serum non-ACHR-positive patients. Do we wait for Japan's data, which looks excellent in this subpopulation, and go back to the FDA? There are a number of things that are being discussed with a company with various KOLs and regulatory agencies to see if we can come up with a solution. Our own belief across the board is that it is efficacious in musk patients. Will you get f approved by a payer versus Rosie? They'll probably go with Rosie because it has an FDA labeling. Amy, when is the best time in the treatment cycle to receive their routine vaccinations? COVID, RSV, flu, shingles. You already have your patient being dosed every four weeks and then a variable interlude. Before the next treatment cycle.
0: Isn't it two to four weeks before the next dose?
1: Yeah. And so we've done a study. Jeff Guptill was the primary author at the time. And we still see vaccination throughout the cycle, even as the day we're administering f the ability to generate an antibody. The antibody levels are lower than one would have expected if you were not on f but we still mounted an appropriate antibody response. So it's not an all or none, but it's sort of in the middle. Now, the one exception is the individual who's taking mycophenolate. And we know this from the transplant world as well. They do not do well with immunizations in their immune response. The ability to generate an antibody response is significantly inhibited. We're not sure of that mechanism. Other questions from the audience? So the comment was that there was an anaphylactic reaction on the third dose of rituximab. And is that risk the same receiving f or ROSI? During the trials of both drugs, we have not seen a case of anaphylaxis. Now, does that mean it will never happen? No. You know, it's a numbers game. But I think the risk is exceptionally small. The mechanism of action is totally different. Tuximab is inhibiting those lymphocytes B-cells expressing CD20 on their surface membrane. Here, we're just simply clearing immunoglobulin out. So the hope for the label will be that f will be approved for those individuals who are ACHR positive and those who are ACHR negative, which then would include all of these. I will tell you one of my best responders was an LRP4 patient and had her duration of response was not overly long, but clearly had significant responses that allowed her to keep working. So the question is, is there a consideration of BTK inhibitors in the treatment of myasthenia gravis? Yes, there are actually two trials. One will soon be starting, and another one is in development right now to look at BTK. Well, I want to thank you all for sticking around and giving of your time.
0: Thanks for your attention. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NYF 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Argenics U.S. Incorporated.